We've already preached 35 sermons on Joshua the man in his book. We began with Israel as a nation in Egyptian bondage. They were delivered from that bondage supernaturally by God and his servant Moses. Then the people of God came to the Red Sea, one of the great pictures of redemption in the Old Testament. They're preserved, saved supernaturally, and Egypt's armies are crushed. Israel then enters into covenant with God and receives his law at Mount Sinai. They come up to the very edge of the promised land. They're about to enter in, and then they apostatize. They stall. They're consigned to wander in the wilderness. And along the way, for 40 years, they're provided for by God's grace. Manna from heaven, water from the rock, shoes that don't wear out. Finally, with only two people remaining from that generation of people who apostatized, Joshua and Caleb, they miraculously enter the land of Canaan. As they come into the land, they are circumcised, they celebrate Passover, they celebrate the sacraments, circumcision and Passover, now transformed into baptism and the Lord's Supper. And as soon as they enter the land, they soundly defeat the fortress city of Jericho. They come boldly to their next conquest, the little town of Ai, and they face a sad defeat there. After discovering sin in the camp, they exercise covenantal church discipline. They remove Achan and his household from their midst. Then they return to Ai and win a complete victory. Then they gather, as we saw last week, at God's amphitheater in the valley of Ebal and Gerizim, and they renew their covenant with God. They have the principle restated for them that they learned at Sinai, blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. Now, as we open Joshua 9, and I hope you have your copy of God's Word open because we're going to have to examine it in some depth. You probably heard J. Paul just read, and you think, why are you punishing J. Paul, making him say some of those words that are so difficult? <clears throat> but we make all our interns run that gauntlet. So as J. Paul was reading, you probably were thinking, Carl, I, I've got a family to raise. I've got a job. I've got pressures on me. What does this seemingly obscure narrative have to do with me? And I want to encourage you to keep your copy of God's Word open because you're going to see profound, clear principles from this text that apply to you and your household today and your children in the next generation. So let's seek the Lord's help at this time. Our Father, we ask that you would take hold of our ears and our hearts now. Teach us the meaning of this text. Show it how it applies to us in our household, in our business, in the church. And show us Christ. Shows his saving work, shows his sovereign grace in this text. We make our request in the name of Jesus, our only Savior. Amen. Look with me in Joshua 9 at the setup in our narrative. At these men who come to Joshua, these men known as the Gibeonites. These men are crafty and sly. And they have to be. Because they know if they don't sell a bill of goods to Joshua if they can't deceive him well, if they don't succeed, their entire people will all be destroyed. And so this is a well-planned, well-plotted deception. And I want you to notice what they say. Look at your copy, and you'll notice in verse 6 and in verse 9, 
They say, first of all, in verse 6, we've come from a far country. And then they say, to add to it in verse 9, we come from a very far country. Your servants have come. Because this is the core of their argument. This is going to be the basis of their argument for mercy is we're not from around here. In fact, we're from so far away, that's going to be key. Now, here's what you have to know about the Gibeonites. They're from 25 miles away. They're not very far away at all. These men are selling a lie and engaging in deception. They don't just lie about where they're from. They lie about their food and their clothing. This is an elaborate scheme. So look at verse 12 and verse 13. They say, this bread of ours that we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come, look, now it's dry and moldy. Because remember, Joshua, we're from so far away. And we've been on the road for so long. Look, our, our bread has gotten crusty and moldy. And the wineskins, because we're from so far away that we filled them up. They were new when we left home. And look at them now. They're torn. And look at our, look at our clothes and our shoes, our garments and our sandals. They've become old. And they're weaving this elaborate tale to deceive Joshua and all the leaders. And I want you to see how well-planned this strategy is. It's a brilliant model for how to deceive someone. I wouldn't recommend it to you, but look at the detail of their, deceptive, their deceptions. Look at verse 8. When Joshua asks who they are and where they've come from, they explain that they've come from far away. But they do something very strategic, and this is brilliant on their part. These men are, it's a nation of con men. They keep silent about the most recent events that have happened just around them, the Battle of Ai and the Battle of Jericho. Since the news of these events wouldn't have reached a, a far country because they're so recent, so they don't talk about those things at all. They're also cunning because how they don't at first call attention to their worn clothing, but they only do so later. If they would have walked in saying, see, see, look at our clothes. We've come from a long way off. Look at our clothing. It's worn out. Look at our wineskins. They only do that later so they don't arouse suspicion. And what I want you to do is explore with me a little bit of history of the Gibeonites. Keep one finger here, and we need to know who these people are. And, and why are they treating Joshua and Israelites this way? Look back at Genesis chapter 9, and I want you to see their history. In Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 19... We're going to trace their descent from Noah, and of course, everybody in this room tonight is descended from Noah, from one of Noah's three sons, and that was certainly the case there. Pick up the narrative in Genesis 9, verse 19, we read, these three, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, big red lights ought to be going off in your head right now. The father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they didn't see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. Now stare at those words from Noah. Noah is a prophet. 
This isn't just a word spoken in anger. It's a prophecy. And so when he says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. When we (coughs) come up to Joshua 9, (coughs) this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. It's awaiting fulfillment. And remember, not one word of God of prophecy can fall to the ground unfulfilled. Noah prophesied by the Holy Spirit that Canaan's descendants will be servants to others. We read on in Genesis 9, look at verse 26. And Noah prophesies, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be his servant. Now Joshua and all the nation of Israel are the sons of Shem. And so look at what Noah is prophesying. He's saying of his three sons, Shem is going to be the overlord, the ruler, the master of the sons of of Ham, of Canaan. The prophecy is the Canaanites will be the servants of the sons of Shem. And so that's a tiny bit of who these Gibeonites are. Then look over at Genesis 10. You need to get the full picture of who the Gibeonites are. Genesis 10, we read in verse 15. Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite. The Hivites are the same. That's a a synonym for the Gibeonites. They're the sons of Canaan. The Gibeonites are descendants of Noah through him and Canaan. Now, something else that needs to be said about the Gibeonites. These people know of the words and works of God. They're not ignorant. These aren't primitive people. Look back at Joshua chapter 9, verse 3, and we get this key descriptive phrase about the Gibeonites. We read in Joshua 9, 3, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, the Gibeonites have heard. They're up to speed with what's happening in their region of the world. They know that the Israelites have come in and have conquered these cities, Jericho and Ai, and they know that now the Israelites are only about 25 miles away from them. These aren't people with their head in the sand. They know what's going on in the world. They know what, that they're next. They also know of the mighty acts of God. Look at Joshua 9, verse 9. They said, From a very far country your servants have come, Because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. Now this is an astounding statement when they make this claim. They know about events. Look at what they say in verse 9. We have heard of his fame and all he did in Egypt. The Gibeonites know about all the events that happened 40 years previous. And they've been talking about it for 40 years in their camps, in their villages, in their cities. They know about how Israel was in Egyptian bondage and how they were brought out by the ten plagues and the mighty deliverance. They're warming up Joshua and saying, we know about your God. We, We know how he brought you out of bondage a generation ago. These people are students of culture and history and the works of Jehovah. But they know even more. They know more about the ways of God more than many people who are your next door neighbors. Many of your neighbors have access to gospel radio and TV and Bibles and internet broadcasts, but they pay no attention to them. But the Gibeonites had been paying attention to who Jehovah was and who his people were. 
Look at Deuteronomy 20, and now I want you to see the key thing they know about God and his ways. In Deuteronomy 20, we're going to see what they know. Pick up the narrative in Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. Now you'll remember this is the word of Moses before Israel entered the promised land, before Moses died. And so this word is over 40 years old, maybe 42, 43 years old. Israel is told, while they're still wandering in the wilderness, in Deuteronomy 20, beginning in verse 10, Israel's told, when you go near a city, this is to prepare them to go into the land of Canaan and take all the cities there. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. In other words, when the Israelites come, here's what they're to do. They're to offer peace. And so look carefully then at what they were commanded. This word is a, a generation old now. We read in Deuteronomy 20, it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace, in other words, if they accept a covenant with you, and if they open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, <clears throat> then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that's in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you. Notice this. This is the instruction about how to deal with cities that are far away which are not the cities of these nations, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. <clears throat> you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, in other words, the Gibeonite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. So this is the distinction. God told Israel, all the cities who are dwelling in Canaan, wipe them out, all the nations. But if you run into tribes who are from far away, you can offer them peace. So think about what these people, the Gibeonites, know. Now we're going to be astounded. They know Deuteronomy 20. They've heard or they've read. Someone's told them. Listen, there's this subtle distinction between when the armies of Israel march into the land. If you're a city that's far away, if you're outside of the land of Canaan and you sue for peace, they'll grant you peace. But if you're a city in Canaan, they'll show no mercy. So what do they do when they come to Joshua? The very first thing they say is, we're from a far country. We're from way far away. They're smart enough to know there's no mercy for those people who are close, who live in the land of Canaan. And so they plead their distance status. They know of Deuteronomy 20. How do they know? Trade routes? Spies? Who knows? But the point is, for our purposes, they know specifics about the supernatural power of God and his strength on behalf of his people Israel in the coming judgment. And they know that the wise thing to do, the only hope for them, is to sue for peace, to ask for a covenant. That's what they wanted. They wanted a covenant of peace, and they're downright pesky about it too. Look at verse 6 in Joshua 9. 
the very first thing they say, they come in and they give who they are, who they are, their grounds for wanting a covenant. And they say in verse 6, we come from a far country. In other words, we're not from around here, so you don't have to wipe us out. We're from far away and we're asking for peace. And then the first thing they ask for is make a covenant with us. They ask that right up front for a covenant. And then look at verse 11. They keep on asking. We are your servants, <clears throat> therefore make a covenant with us. They know just like Rahab. Remember Rahab way back in Joshua 2? Or Rahab, maybe it was the men who were always passing through our establishment, who had crossed paths on the trade routes with Israel. But they, they talked a lot about Israel and Israel's God. And Rahab heard. Faith had come by hearing and hearing by the word in Rahab's case. And so these Gibeonites, they knew about God's great name and power. They say to one another as they're plotting this scam, they say, our only hope to keep from being wiped out. We're, we're right there in the middle of the land of Canaan. We're 25 miles away. They're coming for us next. Our only hope is a covenant of peace, one that guarantees life. Now, hopefully at this point, you're saying, I see where you're going with this. This sounds so familiar. This sounds like, Carl, this sounds like my life. But let me not jump ahead. These people, the Gibeonites, say the only thing I have, the only hope I have is for a covenant of peace. And they do this even though they're Hivites, Gibeonites, under a death sentence. They beg Joshua and his elders, and Joshua makes this glorious Hebrew term. You know the words. You know what they mean. Look at verse 15. They, the Hebrew word for a covenant of peace is a bereath shalom. Bereath meaning covenant shalom of peace. They asked for a bereath shalom. And we're told in verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. A bereath shalom. He cuts the covenant with them. Now, do you see any parallels between you and I and them? We are sons of the cursed one. We're sons of Adam. We're under the curse. Our only hope is to cry out for a covenant of peace. We're staring at a death sentence without a covenant of peace. We only have hope because of what we know from God's word, just like the Gibeonites. Of course, quickly, their ruse, their scam is discovered. And look at the subsequent sentencing. Look carefully at verse 16. Three days later, after Joshua makes a covenant of peace with them, look what's found out. This happened three days after Joshua made a covenant with them. They found out that they were really just neighbors who dwelt just up the road from them. Joshua finds out they're Canaanites. Boy, these guys are really going to get it now, right? Look at verse 17. If this, if this text had a soundtrack to it, it would be ominous martial music playing at this point. And we read, <clears throat> the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day, and it lists their cities. And you think, man, these guys, these Gibeonites, these liars, they're going to get it now. Because here come the armies of Israel, hundreds of thousands of men armed to the teeth. And you're thinking, those Gibeonites shouldn't have lied to Joshua. They shouldn't have scammed him. Here comes our armies. They're coming to your city, the Gibeonites. It's going to be a big wipeout. It's going to look just like Jericho and Ai. And the armies of Israel are really mad. They don't like to be lied to. Look at verse 18. The children of Israel did not attack them. Why? Because their leaders had sworn an oath. 
We read there, the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. The rulers say in verse 19, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. We cannot kill them. What's their sentence? Surely there have to be some consequences, right? Look at their sentence in verse 23. Now, therefore, you're cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. They're consigned to be the slaves of Israel, which, by the way, is a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Remember back in Genesis 9 when Noah says to Ham, Ham, your children shall be servants to the sons of Shem. Fulfilled right here in this text. The fact that the Hivites, the Gibeonites, descendants of Ham are going to now be servants to the sons of Shem is just the fulfillment of that ancient prophecy. Now stop and think with me for a moment. The entire tribe of the Gibeonites. Think what a long, hard, menial existence they're now going to have. This means every day for generation after generation, long files of Gibeonites are going to line up to carry thousands of pails of water. Thousands of men will spend the rest of their days primitively cutting firewood. They don't have chainsaws. And setting up for use for the nation of Israel. But even here, actually no, especially here, you see God's rich grace. You think, well, Carl, where do you see God's grace? This looks like a horrible life, generation after generation. You see a group of people who are now being enslaved, right? They're going to be drawers of water and cutters of wood. But look at something very closely in the text. Re-examine the text and look closer. Look at verse 23. We read, Therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers, for the house of my God. Then again in verse 27, that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. The Gibeonites were going to be servants, but the place of their servitude, listen, in the kind providence of God, the place of their servitude was going to be in the tabernacle and around the altar. Even though they're going to be slaves, they have the inestimable privilege of being brought close to the means of grace on a daily basis. They're going to be servants, yes, in the house of the Lord. What a rich act of kindness on the part of God. Those sacrifices each day took lots of wood to burn up the burnt offerings, lots of water to do all the ceremonial washings. So here are these Gibeonites who've been pagans, Canaanites, enemies of God. They've been brought near. That's the description of us. Just a moment ago, J. Paul read these words in Ephesians 2.11. And I want you to see that's a description of you and I. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 2, remember that you once were Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. But at that time you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you see what Paul says about you and I? 
He says, we were children of wrath, but by the grace of God, by the saving work of Christ, we've been brought near. We've been joined with the people of God. We've been put into the sphere of the means of grace. We were aliens and strangers, now brought near. We can identify with the Gibeonites. Their story is our story. We once were enemies who had been brought close. What do you think happens to the Gibeonites after this? Do you think, well, the first chance they get, they're going to say, this being cutters of wood and haulers of water, this is getting old fast. And the first chance we have, there's going to be a rebellion, and we're going to bring the Israelites down, or we're going to run as fast as we can. I'm going to show you just a moment. The Gibeonites never, ever created any problems for Israel thereafter. When the land divided, Gibeon was given one of the cities that belonged to Aaron and the priests. 400 years later, God brings a famine on Israel because Saul broke the oath. The oath made by Joshua 400 years earlier, King Saul broke the earth and killed large numbers of Gibeonites. So I want you to notice what happens. This is a, a, a huge moment in the life of Israel. Joshua had made this covenant of peace with the Gibeonites and said, okay, you can, you can live here amongst us, but you're going to be our servants and slaves, but we won't kill you. <clears throat> 400 years go by, 10, 12, 15 generations go by, and Saul, now in the place of Joshua, he kills some Gibeonites. You'd think, well, Carl, um, 10, 15 generations has gone by. No big deal. It's a big deal. Look at 2 Samuel 21 and see what becomes of the Gibeonites. What you're going to find is God brings judgment on the nation of Israel because of Saul's actions of covenant breaking. So we read in 2 Samuel 21... Verse 1 and 2, 2 Samuel 21, we read, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. And you're scratching your head saying, Really? Hasn't the statute of limitations passed? It's been 400 years now. Can't we just kill a few Gibeonites? So look what we read. The king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnants of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. What happens when Saul kills them? God brings a famine on the nation of Israel. The Lord said, listen, I am not going to bless you when you mistreat these people. You made a covenant to show kindness to them, even though they're slaves, you can't treat them this way. It was only after the house of Saul was judged and an arrangement made between King David and the surviving Gibeonites that the famine ceased. When David erected the tabernacle, he did it in Gibeon, according to 1 Chronicles 16. When Solomon ascended to the throne, it was at Gibeon, according to 2 Chronicles 1. When Israel goes into Babylonian captivity, guess who goes with them? Now, here's going to be the real test. When Israel is captured for the Babylonian captivity, you'd think at that moment the Gibeonites would say, hey, hey, by the way, we're not Israelites. We're just their slaves. So don't take us into captivity. When Israel goes into Babylonian captivity, guess who goes with them? 
the Gibeonites. And when Israel returns, now this has been 900 years after Joshua's covenant of peace. When Israel returns back from Babylonian captivity, guess who's still with them? Nehemiah 3, Nehemiah 7, the sons of Gibeon. They're still there and they're faithful. They stay close to the covenant of peace and the means of grace. Now I want to point out a problem that's in this text. And this is the recurring issue of the saints and the consequences of their sins. What errors did Israel make in this saga? We have to ask this because according to Romans 15, all the Old Testament was written for our instruction. We have to ask, what did Israel do wrong here? What did Joshua do wrong here? Well, they committed the error of walking by sight. And chiefly, they committed the error of failure to seek God's counsel. Look carefully at our text at Joshua 9, verse 14. You probably read past it a moment ago. Tragic words. We read, Then the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. This could have done by the priestly use of the Urim and Thummim. You remember those breastplates on the, the priest's garment. It could have been asked directly by prayer from Joshua. But they didn't ask of the Lord, what should we do? Do you know what makes this all the more egregious? Joshua was a mature believer. He was 82 years old at this point in our text in Joshua 9. This isn't the lapse of a new believer, but the lapse of a giant of the faith. Not only that, Joshua had fallen before in the same area. Listen to me carefully. This is something that we don't want to hear. But Joshua had fallen in the exact same way in Joshua 7. He hadn't sought God's counsel before he attacked Ai. And let me point out something to you and be humbled as you read this. This is the second time now Joshua's done this. Didn't ask the counsel of the Lord before they attacked Ai. Didn't ask the counsel of the Lord before they made a, a covenant of peace with lying Canaanites. If Joshua, a giant of the faith, a man whose sanctification so far exceeds ours, there's really no comparison. If Joshua is capable of such recurring folly, so are you and I. The lesson should be clear. You and I need to be found regularly, humbly, asking of God for wisdom and guidance. How often do you seek out God and say, Lord, I have no wisdom of myself? You promised in James 1, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask and it will be given to him. You told me in Proverbs 3 to lean not on my own understanding. So here I am again, Lord, an 82-year-old, asking for wisdom. How often do you do that? Or do you fall into the same recurrent pattern, just as Joshua did? He did it before Ai. He did it before the Gibeonites. The same recurrent pattern of not seeking counsel not inquiring of the Lord, and then making foolish decisions. This text in Joshua 9.14, we're told that Joshua and the leaders did not seek counsel, is one more repudiation of worldly wisdom and prayerlessness. There's also a, a deep spiritual principle here. When we err and sin, we can seek and find forgiveness, but the eradication of moral guilt doesn't eliminate all the consequences of sin 
Joshua repented, certainly, of his independence and his self-sufficiency. But he was stuck with tens of thousands of Gibeonites living in his camp. And what we see here is he finds forgiveness, but he still has to grapple with consequences. A few applications from this text. First, one of the things that should be so clear to this, to anyone who reads this text, even for the first time, even if they read it lightly, that when we make oaths and vows, we as believers are to be bound by our word and our promises, even if, especially if, it's disadvantageous to us. Remember this great discussion in Psalm 15 about the same issue. What is the mark of the godly man? He swears to his own hurt and he does not change. This means he makes a promise, the godly man. And even though the market turns against him, circumstances change, he doesn't go back on his word. And that's what we see here with Joshua. Yes, he erred in not seeking of the Lord, but when he makes a promise, he's bound by his word. Maybe you're saying, Carl, I, I want to dump my spouse because I didn't really get good counsel before I married her. And plus, they're not a believer. What does the scripture say? 1 Corinthians 7, believer, stick it out. Be faithful to your vows. Plead for sustaining grace. Here's what should mark believers. Faithfulness to their word. That's what we see happening here. Joshua says, I will keep this promise even though I did it hastily, even though I did it without counsel, even though things were told to me that weren't true. I'm going to be a man of my word even though the world lies. And yes, the world will always lie. Oh, for that to be said for us as a congregation. You want to do business with those people from Woodruff Presbyterian Church. They're not kidding. When they sign a contract, when they make a promise, when they take vows, they mean it. And even if things get difficult, they keep their word. They understand this principle. They're being conformed to the image of a God who always keeps his word. And so they keep their promises. Oh, that we would learn that as a congregation. A second application. There's a word of grace here. If the lesser Joshua, the one we read about here, if the lesser Joshua spared those who came begging for a covenant of peace, how much more will the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, how much will he receive those and spare those who come seeking life? Do you hear the analogy? We've just been looking here in Joshua 9 at the lesser Joshua. He's just a foreshadowing. Is he a real historical person? Yes, of course. But he's a type, a picture of the Lord Jesus, the greater Joshua, to come. What does the, this Joshua do when people come seeking a covenant of peace? He grants it. But what about the greater Joshua? He doesn't just receive those. He extends invitations to enemies. He says, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My friend, we don't have an unwilling greater Joshua. We have a Lord Jesus, the greater Joshua, who opens his arms wide, wide and he offers a covenant of peace. You don't have to come to him and beg him and deceive him and say, let me trick you into making a covenant of peace with me. He holds out his arms all day long and says, all who come to me I'll receive. I'll turn away no one who comes in faith and repentance. Do you see the grace, the greater grace of the greater Joshua that he receives Liars and enemies and rebels. 
My friend, if you came here tonight and you're not in a covenant of peace with the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, let me commend him to you. He is the God of all grace, even to enemies, even to liars, even to deceivers. And if you will flee to him tonight, you will find mercy and he will never break his promise to you. Let's pray together. Our God, we ask that you'd cause us to be faithful men and women, that we indeed would keep our words, that we would be conformed to your image just as you make promises and keep them. It would be said of us as well. Whether it be promises we've made as we join the church, promises to guard the peace and purity and unity of the church, promises that we made in marriage to be faithful until death parts us, promises that we made in baptism to diligently, covenantally nurture our children, cause us to be honorable men and women who keep our word even at great cost. But, oh God, how we thank you for the picture of grace of the lesser Joshua sparing deceivers, and in that we see ourselves. How much more do we have cause to praise you for the greater Joshua who has spared us and made a covenant of peace with us? We pray with thanksgiving.